0: And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan, as it begins to be fall like weather in Chicago, and I hope is beginning to be spring like weather in Australia.
1: Oh, it decidedly is. We we struggle to keep you know to sort of track of any winter at all. I think that was one of the reasons as you might recall, that I mm-hmm. vaguely resented going to WorldCon was that sort of waste of two perfectly good weeks of winter when I had to be in a Reno summer. But it's That's true. The skies are clear, it's cool, it's pleasant. It's actually the best time of the year here all year round. So, of course, naturally Ah. what I'm doing is planning another trip back to America.
0: Of course, right.
1: Because I think Mm -hmm. since we last spoke, I've bought my plane tickets.
0: I've seen your schedule, and it's an incredibly complicated schedule.
1: Oh, you're going to make me cry. I don't
0: don't envy that at all. It's time... It's time we had matter
1: transmitters. <laughs> well, well past, or, or you know that thing of uh, Justine Larbalestier's from her tour series, where you could just open a door and magically be in the city you wanted to be in. I think. Mm-hmm. And yes, we get Larry Niven's flash mobs, but I could put up with that to not have to spend 14 hours on a plane, and I still have to buy more plane tickets, actually. Oh really? Yeah. Well, I haven't actually bought the the New York to San Diego stuff. So I'm going, like, Perth, Sydney, overnight in Sydney. Hello, everybody in Sydney. I'll see you there. Sydney to LA, overnight in LA. LA to New York. So we get to New York. We're there for... We get there on Sunday. And then on the Wednesday, I have to fly back to San Diego. Then fly back to New York on the Monday. Um, And then I'm there for a week or so. And then I fly to LA with the kids and Marianne to go to Disneyland. So, yeah. Busy, busy. Hmm...
0: I but I'm not. I'm not envious of that at all. I mean, <laughs> two, that's it's two transcontinental and two. No, that's three or four transcontinental
1: plus two four. transoceanic flights. It's it's. I actually travel uh, across the U.S. four times, mm. um, which is probably you know strictly speaking was two times more than necessary, but. For various reasons that we don't really need to go into, that's the way it played out. On the other hand, and I am I completely understand why you won't be there, I will be at World Fantasy, which I am looking forward to. Um, and I'm already talking up to, to, to Toronto to friends. I was talking to our mutual friend Kat Sparks. Hello, Kat. You're probably working out. Hello, uh, And she said there's a possibility she will be in sunny Toronto, or rainy Toronto, whatever it'll be come next October, rainy Toronto. Um, might even drag Marianne along. I'm threatening to leave the kids behind and drag Marianne along to Toronto as well. I
0: think that would be a delightful thought because Toronto is—it's uh, as, as you know, I've, I've been invited to be Toastmaster. Mm. Our good friends John Cluden and, and, and Elizabeth Hand are, are guests, and it's—it's um, a—it's a northern-themed um, world fantasy, which of course is the next one I'll be at. So I'm very much looking forward to that. 2012 was going to be interesting. Uh, you know, Nobody's talking about 2012 as the end of the world anymore. I mean, did all the idiots finally shut <laughs> up? Or did, did that Roland Emmerich movie do it for them? But we, we've got a Worldcon in Chicago in 2012. Now, Chicago yes. has just been destroyed. Uh, the, the exact area of Chicago where a Worldcon is going to be on, yeah. on, on Michigan Avenue near the Hyatt Hotel is the part that got completely demolished in Transformers 3.
1: Ah, well, then we don't so. have to go
0: yeah well it's 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 gone, yes, I'm sorry, there's nothing left but giant robots.
1: Well, from what I hear, that's how the convention's going as well, so it's probably actually sort of reasonable
0: well, um my sense about a world con and the the way to avoid being disappointed in world is to have low expectations <laughs> i've I've never expected one to be especially well organized or Or congenial or cozy in any way. And I've never been disappointed.
1: (laughs) See, I I guess what I have to say to that is, for me, it's too far to come for something that I have low expectations of. Well, that's true.
0: That's a point.
1: So, as I've said before, it it always sounds like you're being... I feel bad saying this kind of thing because I think it makes me sound petulant. But... um, I'm I'm probably giving Worldcon a break for a couple of years, as I think I said to you last time we spoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be, for me, it's like Toronto, then Brighton. If and, and if I get two conventions in a year, I'll probably go to one of the other US conventions rather than Worldcon, I think. But certainly, mm-hmm. yeah. The two World Fantasies and then London in 2014. And we've, I've had a major change in um, expectations here at home because I was talking about dragging Sophie along, to, mm-hmm. um, to to Brighton, and she'd always been, no, I don't want to go see it, not really interested. And now she's going, no, Dad, I think I'd really like to go to Brighton. And I'm going, okay, mm-hmm. well, we'll just see about doing that as well. So uh, I, I think it really could be fun. I, mean, I certainly am thinking that, apart from the fact that I would like it if you were there, uh, I'm thinking mm-hmm. that San, uh, San, San Diego will be a lot of fun.
0: Oh, yeah, San Diego uh, will be enormous amounts of fun. There are lots of people that... Um, are going to san diego who who never go to world cons at all mm, yeah, yeah and that's um i mean it, it is part of there. there's an implicit kind of genre definition at work in every con yeah um and and this there are a lot of fantasy writers and some horror writers who will show up at a world con simply because it's huge yeah um but it doesn't it doesn't identify itself with the uh, with, with a certain kind of literary writing, which you and I both tend to like, the kind of thing that Graham, Graham Joyce does. And he's apparently going to San Diego as well. Yep. Uh, and so there's a, there's a sense to me of a more congenial literary community at a world fantasy. Yeah. Meaning most of the people that are there and large chunks of that community are, are, are in evidence at any particular world con, but, but they're always in the minority.
1: Mm. I think that's true. I mean, it's, yeah, it's harder to find your economy. I mean, to me, at its simplest, world fantasy is world con cut down to all the parts of the convention I enjoy. That's a good way of putting it, I think. You know. So there's that. Uh, on the other, What I should probably sort of ask you, though, is how has your science fictional week been? My science fictional what? Week! Your week in science fiction. Oh, it, I mean, it's been my two week, week in science it's fiction. Two, it's been two weeks since oh, yeah. we podcast together. I was off enjoying Father's Day. Last week, uh, Joe Walton was was on the podcast, and mm-hmm. thank you again to Joe for doing that with us. It was fun talking to her in Reno. I actually sort of wish I'd recorded the rest of the conversation we had after you left, because we talked for another hour and a half afterwards. Well, this
0: is one of the things that's fascinating about uh, – about- Meeting somebody through a podcast, I'd talked to Joe once or twice before for maybe ten minutes ever, yeah. and and suddenly you realize that here's somebody who has had similar experiences at a different age. Now she's about your age, but similar experiences of discovering the genre and discovering the genre in a context of mm. problematical social and family relationships, which I think a lot of us did.
1: Yes, very much. So I, I did. I enjoyed that very much. But I guess the, I was sort of doing. I was trying to segue from the, you know the rambling about. Going to conventions again, or they're rambling about awards to what you've been yeah. reading, and I, you know, sort of because I've been reading a little bit of science fiction. I mean, actually, a lot of short fiction, and I know um, you've been reading assiduously as well. I've been reading. Yeah, the things I've read,
0: um, almost all of now for the for, for, for the next column. One one which I had not read, and I think you had neither at the time we talked to um, uh, Ian McDonald, is Planes Runner. Yes which I love, I liked quite a bit. It's very enjoyable. Yes. It's not, it's one of the first books I've read, uh, which is the beginning of a series and I can exactly see why it's a series rather than a single novel. Yes. Uh, because, uh, and, and and the, what makes it that is that he uses, uh, alternate universe scenarios, parallel worlds, uh, and even has a kid named Everett after Hugh Everett. Uh, so, so the, you know, the, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is at the heart of the book. But obviously, one of the things if you want to have endless adventures with your young protagonist is he can just go to one version of the world after another. This novel takes place entirely in one version, yeah. which is a kind of steampunk version. Yes. Although it's ironic to call it steampunk since he finds himself in a London in which steam power had never been invented.
1: Well, yes, it, it, it's... I said this to someone the other day, because, and I don't want to talk too much about the book because it's still a few months away. It's Just his background, it's it's Ian McDonald's first ever young adult book. It's coming out from Pyre in December. Um, But what struck me about it was that it's the best steampunk, not steampunk, the best airship book I've read in a long, long time, possibly ever. The airship world that he comes up with in, in Planes Runner is an enormous amount of fun. Uh, I I loved reading. It's it's one of the most enjoyable books I've read this year. I think
0: uh, I, mm, it's uh, I I would I would tend to agree that it's a very persuasive world. Although uh, the uh, the airship in the third volume of Scott Leviathan's uh, Scott Scott <laughs> Leviathan's, uh, <laughs> Scott Leviathan's uh, famous novel Westerfeld the Westerfeld trilogy. Yep. Um, no, the he he really in in, in the final volume Goliath spends virtually the entire time aboard this wonderful uh, Leviathan airship and creates a very persuasive culture of that as well, which the the more he wrote about that airship in that series, the more he began to realize he wasn't simply writing uh, a a displaced naval adventure, which is one of the things that you tend to see in a lot of um, uh, dirigible steam balloon kinds of novels is that, well, we're just going to do... well, we're going to do something like Coratio Hornblower in the air. Yeah. Uh, and and there was some of that in the beginning of the trilogy, and the more he fell in love with the Leviathan itself, the more he started playing with the interior of the ship. It's clear to me that, in MacDonald's case, he was in love with the idea of this uh, airship from the beginning. And yeah. it does have what I think may be one of the most persuasive airship battles uh, in it mm. um, I've ever read.
1: yes. Oh, look, the, the whole thing comes together. and it's inter- It was interesting. Uh, I, again, I don't want to preempt our podcast with Ian that we recorded at, S- at San Diego, t- or sorry, at Reno too much. But no. he was talking about having learned how to write for younger readers when he worked on the British edition of Sesame Street, or British British version mm-hmm. of Sesame Street. And I think you can see that in this. He, he knows how to structure a story. He keeps it very lin- linear and straightforward structurally, even though the, the world is complicated and engaging. I did find that with this book, as with another novel I've read, which is coming out next year, there is that moment where it takes to build. I mean, he starts at a point of action, but it it really only to me gained complete traction when we when there's the first shift out of our universe. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it just r- ramps up a notch. And it may say something about my modern reading, but it's actually when and this happens in this other novel, which will when we, when it comes later in the year, I'll I'll get to. When the mm-hmm. female character engages with the story as well, yes, because that's when it really picks up. And because just again, trying to avoid spoilers and not preempt reviews, but in effect, there's a young boy whose father is kidnapped. This is on the back uh, of, of the actual book, and the young boy has to follow it, follow her, his father, work out how to follow his father to another uh, alternate Earth in an alternate universe to try and rescue him. And that's what it really does pick up. And when it does, it picks up well. It's one of McDonald's probably most, I don't know, straightforwardly exciting narratives to read. I mean, I've read most of his novels. There's a few middle period ones I've not. But this one was really yeah. engaging very quickly, very straight. And I mean, I'll be interested. I hope it finds the young adult audience that it's aimed at because I really think our field finding modern science fiction stories for a young adult audience is very, very important. And this is the kind of book that could do it.
0: Well, the kind of book that doesn't compromise on science fiction ideas yeah, uh, and and doesn't exploit them too much because one of the things that uh, he could easily have done in this novel is something uh, similar to... It wasn't a young adult novel, but it was um, a similar uh, multiverse novel was uh, Paul McCauley's Cowboy Angels. Yeah. In which he uses the multiple in endless multiplicity of worlds as, as a plot device. And yeah. so you're hopping from one alternative to another. I think he does a little bit more of that than is necessary in that novel. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, uh, that makes me think this is a very good idea for a series in some ways, maybe a better idea for a series than for a single novel is that um, he does give us this one alternate world and he doesn't do what would be easily, easily done something. like this, to write an Alice in Wonderland kind of narrative where he jumps from one universe to another, to mm. a, uh, chasing, chasing the bad guys through universes. There might be a good novel to be written in that. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's much more coherent than, than that. It's much more coherent than I thought it would have been. I do worry about it being a, a very British novel being published in the U.S. only at this point, I gather.
1: I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm struck by this because it came up before with Stephen Baxter's H-Bomb Girl, and it may be my own blind spots and what I'm yeah. culturally familiar with, but I didn't find Planes Runner a stunningly British novel. I don't know
0: what you can assume young adult readers know these days. I mean, um, the Harry Potter novels certainly were full of uh, uh, British public school kinds of uh, allusions, and that didn't seem to slow anybody down at all. No. Uh, So maybe that uh, our young readers are more um, sophisticated than we think they are, or at least the readers who are going to read books like this. The... um, uh, The H Bomb Girl. I was told by an editor was too British uh, for an American, uh, a young American audience. Um, It's set in Liverpool during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It has a lot. And in 1962 is a wonderful time to set a novel for for people my age or somewhat younger because you know within the space of a few months you've got you've got the death of Marilyn Monroe, you've got the Beatles playing in the cavern of Liverpool, you've got. Uh, the first Doctor No movie, being re- the first James Bond movie, you've got Doctor Who about to premiere um, on on the BBC. So there are all kinds of cultural associations that I think are very meaningful. But um, but maybe uh, maybe maybe some of our editors underestimate young adult audiences these days.
1: Well, I think we all underestimate young adult audiences. But what I would suggest to you instead is that is it that I mean is it was was the H Bomb Girl too. British or was it two sixties for a young adult that audience could, that could be as well I mean uh, any novel that
0: uh, has a crux of uh, something like the Cuban Missile Crisis has a lot of implied backstory which is explained pretty well in, in Baxter's novel I don't have any problem with it. Yeah. I like the novel yeah um, but I mean but if it could be that, that doesn't resonate with young people
1: well think about it as well I mean I, it's something that I have to keep reminding myself the comparative time is, is different and what I mean by that is, I was born in 1964, if I look back to the 60s, you know, I was a teenager 14 years after 1964. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. a, a 15-year-old in 2011, you know, I mean, it's 50 years ago. True. And, and if, if I'd been, let's, let's say, if in 1977 or 1978, you'd given me a novel set in 1928, based on bits of cultural information from the 1920s and 30s i don't know how interested i would have been um if you go that far before
0: somebody's birth that's an interesting question i remember when i was a kid i was utterly fascinated with novels and movies even mm-hmm. and music yeah that was popular three or four or five years before i was born because i kind of wanted sure. to I was, I was getting an understanding of my parents generation from that yeah uh, and, and uh, so I was uh, when I was a kid. We were
1: I was listening to Glenn Miller records for heaven's sure. sake. Sure. You know, yeah, me too. Were- My dad played them. Yeah. But, okay. But could you imagine sort of turning around when you were 11 and looking at something 50 years before you were born, or 40 years before you were born? And I think that 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 might be, have been the crux for um, for the H Bomb Girl. Whereas with Planes Runner. The cultural assumptions and everything I think are plain enough for a modern for a modern young adult audience. Particularly since the main aspect of it is a setting issue, you know. Yeah. That's and, true. It, and if they're making Planes Runner into a movie, right? I have no doubt that an American filmmaker would take the British seaport, in effect, that is part of the story, and make it an American seaport. You know, shift it to somewhere like you know, New York and the Hudson River rather than where it's set. Yeah. But that's all set dressing, and I actually think that all of the stuff that's intrinsic, well, a lot of the stuff that's intrinsically British, is actually set dressing, and I think that your young readers are more than capable of, and willing to deal with it. Uh, it's more a case of making sure that you package the book and describe the book in an in a intriguing manner so that um, kids will will pick it up. I mean. Yeah, we should, we're, talk, we're talking about
0: this as though it's a kid's book. It's coming out from higher Are they publishing it as a yes. YA
1: book? this is their first YA title. Oh, uh, okay. But So it's, it's but certainly he, aimed at 14 and up, certainly.
0: And, but being Ian McDonald, it's going to draw a lot of adult oh, yeah. readers, like the H-Bomb Girl do it, a lot of adult readers. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I don't think it's going to be disappointing to them. No. But I do wonder if, um, if young adult editors, some mm. of them, uh, have... Fairly fixed ideas about what young adult audiences are on the one hand, which may not always be correct, or B, they're all feeling enormous pressure between Twilight and Harry Potter to do something which is massively accessible and uh, immediately familiar. And uh, the, the the appeal of novels uh, I'll, I'll pick out I'll pick out I'll pick on Twilight because I actually read as much of it as I could uh-huh. um, is that there are no surprises in it really. No. There, there, there are narrative tricks in it, but all the characters are exactly the characters that anyone at the age of 12 or 14 can identify with. Yeah. Uh, the school is a typical school, and so forth and so on. So this, the readers don't have to stretch themselves at all for that. Yeah. My argument is that if somebody's going to read science fiction, or most fantasy, but certainly science fiction, you're attracting a kind of reader who wants to stretch herself or himself to begin with by picking up the book. They wouldn't pick up the book otherwise.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. It's the same reason that um,
0: people who read um, any kind of a lot of people cross read between science fiction and mysteries. And it's interesting to find uh, the mystery writers that they lose patience with or the thriller writers that they lose patience with. A lot of science fiction writers that I read readers that I know uh, read early James Patterson novels and they were fine. The Alex Cross novels were not Mm -hmm. great, but dumber and dumber and dumber as they went along. Until he finally wrote a couple of science fiction or fantasy novels that are, to me, not really very defensible as science fiction or fantasy.
1: <laughs> well, no, no, I think they're not. But but I mean, that that's true also of sort of anything that sort of is bestseller fiction, really, isn't it? You know, th- it is a simplified view of the universe, to put it politely. Um, I don't. No? Well, I don't know that it's a simplified version of the universe. Uh, the.
0: Uh, to get back to the Plains Runner again the, the novel uh, as a narrative structure is much more linear it doesn't have this yes. sort of origami plotting which he does with narrative, multiple narratives folding in on themselves yes. and creative the sort of thing that makes us love something like The Dervish House no I don't think he could get, get away with that but the events that he portrays are um, he portrays them very clearly and linearly but they're Ian McDonald kinds of events if I could say that well,
1: I guess what, what what crossed my mind, and this may actually sync with what you're saying, it's not an old-fashioned science fiction novel. It's no, not. not. Yeah, you know, it's not an old-fashioned science fiction. Y a, it it feels like a modern, contemporary piece of science fiction, and I think it's got a lot that can appeal to a you know a, a modern audience. You, you know, you have a non-Caucasian male lead you have a you know a female co-lead really once once we get to her and I have to say I talked to Ian about this at some length after you know what, what, what I now look back as on as the great goonies incident of 2011 mm-hmm. uh, where we you know we showed goonies to Sophie age nine and she was outraged at the lack of a female character you until know, half or more way, the way through the, the film mm-hmm and really didn't want to watch it, I was getting very stroppy about it. And so I you know, I was going, Well, okay, Ian, when does, you know, the, the, the female character show up? And he's going, Well, about a third of the way in and it, it is about a third of the way in and the story does mm. pick up. Um so I I think it, it it's just a smart book and I I, might, I take my hat off to to Lou Andrews for picking it up actually. Uh, and I'm curious to see that it's yet to find, at least as of this recording, which is uh, the first week of September of 2011, it's yet to pick up a U- UK publisher, which I hope will be resolved pretty soon, because I think it deserves to come out widely.
0: You know. I think it does, too. Let me change uh, to the other book I read this past week, which was uh, uh, Unpossible and Other Stories, the first first collection of short stories by yep. Daryl Gregory. Because Daryl, to me, is one of the most interesting writers to emerge in the field in the last decade or so. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think you were probably aware of him before I was, because I think I first read a couple of well, his, his famous sort of story that kind of launched his reputation was Second Person, Present Tense. Yes. And uh, and then a couple of follow-ups on that that were very neurologically sophisticated. I remember somebody described a couple of his early stories to me as 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 a whole new kind of neurological science fiction
1: yeah
0: Uh, because it's 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 all based on actual uh you know brain research and neurology research and that sort of thing um and so he had he had a niche early in his career where he was going to do something um well to to put it in a very oversimplified way he could have been doing something in the area of neurology and neurological and consciousness and selfhood and those issues Mm in science fiction uh, somewhat in the way that um that daniel keys was once stereotyped as being a psychology writer being a a behavioral writer and what gregory has done instead is something completely different every time out yes uh, i think that's very true it's very courageous on his part uh and some would say foolhardy on his
1: part. <laughs> well, I, I've not spoken to him about this, but he did in some ways start writing comparatively late. And I wonder if he just feels like he can't afford to indulge himself repeating, him, you know, repeating himself. So he's going to go for it every single time. I know that when I, when I asked him to write a story for me for Eclipse, I was expecting mm-hmm. a particular kind of story. And I did not anticipate a, the superhero story that he sent to me, which I really, really liked a lot. So that you know that was
0: the Lord Lord Grim story was. That's it?
1: right. Yes. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, that's what I mean.
0: Uh, th- th- there are some commonalities in his in, in some of his stories. Most of the ones since then, he's been going back and visiting things he likes to read. Yeah. He'll do a, a kind of uh, politicized take on superheroes in that story. He'll do a take on Philip K. Dick uh, in, uh, in in his first novel. The story Unpossible is his revisiting his favorite uh, children's books. Yes. Uh, and having worlds of that, and then he, uh, and and then he writes a very bizarre uh, novel, *The Devil's Alphabet*, Alphabet about uh, which is kind of a Southern Gothic, maybe science fictional story about a town in in, in Tennessee where where everybody's mutated. Um, and then he writes a zombie novel. Yeah. Uh, so he's 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 doing a very good job of keeping his readers off their balance, and yet there is something very characteristic about all of his. Um, stories and novels. He writes very sensitively about families. Yeah. Um, in other words, I think what we're seeing here uh, is something. Back in the fifties, some smart or, or or overbearing editor, some H. L. Gold, would have sat Daryl down and said, "You're not creating a niche for yourself here. You know, you're not you're not you're not building a franchise." <laughs> well, he's not, is he? Well, he is, but he's building a franchise in what we would consider mainstream terms. Terms. He's he's. He's, he's building a franchise of stories that deal with variations on family relationships, variations on parent-child parent, relationships, yep. um, variations on alienation. He's, he's, the, the, the themes of his novels and stories are fairly consistent. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's just that they're not consistent in a science fictional or fantasy way. They're consistent in terms of what we think of as character and, uh, and, and the setting and relationships.
1: Yeah. No, he I, Seems
0: to be. Yeah. In, in some ways, he's a mainstream writer who writes only science fiction and fantasy stories.
1: And in many ways, he's not alone in that. He's not the first writer to find that the science fiction field gives coverage to to, to, to that sort of a career. I can think of a small handful of writers. I mean, in some ways, although he's a completely different writer, he's not got that different shaped a career to to someone like say, Graham Joyce, who also finds shelter in our our field, though he's arguably a mainstream writer.
0: Mm Mm-hmm well there, there there are a number of writers and Graham Joyce is one of them I would say Kelly link is one of our jeff our usual round of suspects sure, we, yeah. start talking to writers, we like to Jeff Ford uh, is that there is a kind of set of imagery or set of iconography or set of um, very useful tools in science fiction which you you can use to do other things than write traditional science fiction with or fantasy or ghosts uh, there are ghosts in Graham Joyce novels uh, they're Ghosts in lots of his novels. There are mysterious figures that may or may not be ghosts in some of them, um, and he knows how to use that. But what? He, but he's using them as tools rather than as, um, as as plots. One of the things that I was told. The only I wrote, I wrote a book many many years ago uh, called The Known and the Unknown. It was a study of the iconography of science fiction, and that's yep. important because years later. Uh, when I was talking to Jonathan Lethem for the first time, I found out he'd read the book. Okay. And I thought, this, this, I, was, I was impressed. I mean, this is this before, <laughs> this is when we were giving Jonathan Lethem the Crawford Award, so he wasn't Jonathan Lethem. Yeah. Um, and I was yeah. stunned this guy had read it. And, and what he said he liked about the book was it's not a compliment to the book particularly, was that he realized that he wanted to use these images, but he didn't want to write science fiction narratives. Okay. And to some extent, if you look at his uh, short fiction especially, uh, there's a lot of that going on in it. Uh, there, there, sto- there, There's a story that vaults, uh, you know, successively distant areas in the future called yep. Five Fox. Uh, there are the, the wall of the sky, the wall of the eye, this sort of thing. And I thought, well, there are a lot of people doing that now. You you, you can use a science fiction image um, without having to write this traditional kind of story you would write about that
1: image. Yeah.
0: I guess that's true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. And that in turn brings me to my other sort of uh, rant uh <laughs> which which I, I told you about in advance but i don't know why this occurred to me this week um i tried to read this book uh, that came out a couple that's out now it's a bestseller called yep. robo apocalypse yep and it's a robot apocalypse novel it's like okay we've done everything we can with the zombie apocalypses so it's time for robot apocalypses and uh I, I, I miss the 1950s when we had mutants. Nobody's writing mutant novels anymore. <laughs> That's and true. it occurred to me that this novel, okay, the novel I did not finish. I did not get very far into it. Uh, it's probably a fine adventure novel, but it struck me as dumb. And, <laughs> I, and, and, and it's going to be a Spielberg film. Um, of course well, it Spielberg is. Yeah. Films with, oh, okay, okay. So I started thinking about robots and films, and I started thinking about most of the robots I've seen in most science fiction. And I know you've edited robot stories. You've done yeah.
1: collections. Robots are dumb. Now, why you, you said this to me earlier, and I didn't have a chance to stop and really think about it. Explain to me now, clearly and succinctly, why are robots are dumb? I'm not disagreeing with you, but why are they dumb?
0: Okay. Um, I'll, I'll get to the point in a minute. That I think robots are very useful as a kind of metaphor, as a kind of symbol. You can use sure. them to talk about class warfare. But part, I know what... I, I just remember what started me thinking that somebody pointed out that this year is the 90th anniversary of the first production of Carl Chopik's play. R U R which okay. of course gave us the word robots Yep. Uh, and robots under that name have been in the field ever since. So I started thinking about, um, uh, even when I was a kid, I was remembering re- reading Asimov's robot stories or reading Lester Del Rey's robot stories that, uh, these are clever stories but i don't ever think one of these things is going to be built a humanoid robot that's doing the dishes in the kitchen yeah
1: i'm skeptical but yeah uh yeah
0: in in the first place i uh, even not when i was a kid because we didn't have one but i knew there were such things as dishwashing machines which are robots of are single-use robots but they're robots of a Mm certain they're already doing that we already have a multiplicity of machines so the idea of a humanoid robot going around being a butler or a servant or most ominously a slave is something a, I wouldn't want in my house. B would be ridiculously expensive and C doesn't serve any practical function at all. Yeah. Any conceivable future that would have humanoid robots doing tasks, um, that were, uh, that, that, that were multi-level tasks. In other words, I'm not talking about the kind of robots to be used in automobile manufacture. Those again tend to be single use robots or programmable within, yeah, the, within sure. range. Uh, but the idea of you and I started thinking, I, I've got a two-bedroom apartment here on the ninth floor, and what if there are a robot clanking around here? I'd be really irritated at it. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't want it here, and it'd be too heavy. It'd scuff up the floors in my apartment. You're a cranky um, old man. <laughs> I, I'm a cranky old man exactly. And so I, th- I thought, but even when I was a kid, I thought, no, I don't want one of these robots. Um, Asimov's robots work to the extent that he has them exploring the exterior of mercury for example sure. i think that story run around there are, there are things where you can understand robots being used yes in that way. but when we actually built a robot to explore the surface of mars it didn't go clanking around like c3po no well,
1: but, well no you, you you're entirely right there's there's very little logical purpose despite all the efforts being made to do this to actually build a humanoid robot there's, there's, there's very little convincing reasons. And the there's sociological no reasons. reasons in stories are always made up. I mean, I'm thinking now about Rachel Swirsky's very enjoyable story, uh, Erosphilia Agape. Yeah. Which has, uh, in effect, what, a, there's a humanoid lover robot, or sex robot or something, right? Yeah. Humanoid sex robots don't even make much sense, really, to, to go to the extent of making them. And would no. be very disturbing creatures. You know, you have the whole uncanny valley concept which comes into play, and the amount of technology to overcome the Uncanny Valley is extraordinary. And what's the plus for it? Uh, I mean, you talk about living in an apartment in Chicago. Would you want mm-hmm. a robot clanking around? No. What you'd probably want was a house AI controlling a batch of nanotechnology-sized objects that will do do all that housework for you invisibly so the house is always clean and neat and tidy and all that. And you know, when you want actual... Um, you know humanoid you know contact you would probably you know you would actually deal with actual people because one of the problems with, with the the idea of using robots for you know, the, you know the way they're used in stories is we actually already have a technology for making people mm-hmm uh, and actually, I wonder now that I think about this off the top of my head, is it more likely that you would end up with something like CJ Cherry's Ozzy, right? Which are, in effect, psychologically programmed, genetically constructed people rather than robots. If you want, yeah, if like, for and some and reason and society and wanted something like that, which is pretty hard to envisage from where we sit right now. I, th- I think that's true. And I think that,
0: uh, ironically, one of the. Uh characteristics of of Chopex robots was that they were essentially uh organic they were not constructed machines as i recall yeah uh that they were grown uh as a kind of slavery it's his other famous well not famous anymore but his other novel on the same theme was called war with the newts in which uh this this kind of uh, amphibious creature is enslaved by humanity and revolts it's the same plot basically as rur but using completely biological creatures but i think you're absolutely right about the ai uh, that that robots uh, were conceived in essentially in a pre-computer era. Mm. Uh, the, the idea that uh, they would have some kind of a positronic brain, which even even Asimov said he just made up out of whole cloth, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, doesn't really replace the fact that once you've got a computer who can control the elements of your house, and that's this goes back to the 40s in science fiction as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly there's a computerized house in Bradbury's. Uh, there will come soft rains. Yeah. Um, so the idea that that, that, that a, an intelligence, uh, an artificial intelligence, a computerized intelligence, yep. which can run your dishwasher and run your vacuum cleaner, and because now we now have robot vacuum cleaners, uh, that makes sense. I mean, I think that's something we're moving more and more toward. People have uh, have houses like this already. Uh, but the idea of a humanoid robot was uh, was an idea that predated the notion of artificial intelligence as we now understand it as something essentially disembodied
1: yeah so so I guess the question that sits from there is why do they remain artistically attractive you know uh, is it simply that there are great ways for simplifying and abstracting human characteristics into stories without having to have the complexity of a human character there you know are they something that we can offset certain emotions certain characteristics onto so that we can then you know, run a story around them, much as we do well, guess, with zombies, because well, robots are scientific zombies.
0: Yeah, to some extent that's true. But I think the Rachel Swirsky story you mentioned is a very good example of this, which is a story about one character essentially, yeah, and how her how her anxieties and desires and passions are defined by a, a series of constructs around her. Yeah, uh, which she she could have written that story. Uh, this is going out on a limb, but I bet she could have she, I'm saying, only saying this because I think she's an enormously talented writer. Sure. I think she could have written that story without the robots.
1: She probably could have written it as a mainstream story, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which of course is so one of the, one robots. of one of those litmus tests for science fiction stories. You know, if you take the science fiction element out of it, is it a, and it still works as a science fiction story? I don't know that I ever bought into that. <laughs> um, I'm not saying I do. I'm just throwing it out there on the table.
0: I mean, if you take the science fiction out of Heinlein's Double Star, you've got Prisoner of Zinda. What's wrong with that?
1: <laughs>
0: uh, take the yeah. uh, you know, uh, science fiction out of the stars my destination, you've got The Count of Monte Cristo, which I think is a perfectly fine novel.
1: <laughs> but then you know you enjoy it for a different reason. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, and and no, not Yeah, I,
0: I think you enjoy it more. I think you enjoy it uh, because you're uh, at, at least uh, a, a certain portion of the readership. You're recognizing a very familiar adventure story, yes. But you're recognizing it placed in this enormously um, uh, bizarre, inventive setting. And so, what you want to do is to make the setting uh, crucial to to, to to your novel. Uh, the most recent example of this is Hanu Ryan Yemi's *The Quantum Thief*, yeah, which is a 1914 era boy detective story. It's a Maurice Leblanc story, but it's such it's set in such a wonderfully Invented world that yeah. you can enjoy both at the same time. Yes. No, I wouldn't want to take the science fiction out of that story at all because uh, the, the, There are a couple of other uh, there, there There must be a few science fiction variations on the Phantom of the Opera or some of these other Pre-World War one. I. I know there's a Susie McKee Charnas called the what is it called? Uh, she did a Phantom of the Opera story.
1: Oh, yeah know the one you mean beauty or something 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 beauty. with the
0: subtitle uh, Yeah Beauty and the Phantom or something along those lines. Uh, but she was playing with fantasy tropes there, not with science fiction. True, uh, true. So, so yeah, I think you can make a perfectly useful science fiction novel, a perfectly enjoyable science fiction novel, using the template of a mainstream story. Uh, yep. Essentially, and, and, and Greg Benford knows he did this, he took William Faulkner's The Bear and science fictionized it as Against Infinity. Yeah. And it works fine. I think it's one of these... I think against infinity, along with the Jupiter Project, are a couple of early, well, by now early Benford novels that should work. That that would work today very very well as young adult novels. I think Jupiter Project was published as young adult, yeah, but against so. infinity wasn't. But still,
1: yeah,
0: uh, yeah. I, I think I think young readers like the setting, and I think setting is very very important in science yeah,
1: fiction. Yeah. Okay, so you you've made the, the statement that robots are dumb, and I kind of see your point. So. Why are we attracted to, to, to them? Because it strikes me that in the last two or three years, as I've been reading around the field, I see more and more of them in, in fiction.
0: You know, I think they're coming back. But I I think robots, when I say they're dumb, I'm only talking about they're dumb as a science fictional concept, as something that reasonably we could develop an economy in which they became practical household tools and sure. things. The literary function of robots, I think what's happened is that people have begun to realize, well, yeah, robots of that sort okay, there's a motorcycle going on outside my window because I'm reminding everybody I'm in Chicago where people ride motorcycles down the street. The, the, the kind Unlike of the rest of use, the
1: world. <laughs> yeah, okay, continue. It could very well be
0: that the literary use of robots is only now becoming sophisticated because earlier, and uh, some of the things were disturbing to me about some of the early uh, robot comic robot stories the lester del rey uh, stories is that they became sex objects they became really uncomfortable stand-ins for comic servants yeah um, they became uh, comic stand-ins for racist stereotypes there are all kinds of things that were uncomfortable about the early robots that doesn't mean the robot isn't a very very useful image for what writers want to do and one explanation if, if you want me to get theoretical from it is the robots are a perfect liminal figure in that it's something which is partly us and partly the mechanical world that we live in yeah. in other words they look like us uh, they have a lot of similarities to us but they're completely alien from us at the same
1: time doesn't that make them the you know the, the most one of the more quintessentially science fictional tropes then or icons or whatever else I believe because, it is because they are the crossover between you know human and technology mm-hmm
0: and I think that's what the I think that's what their strength has always been in science fiction. I think the best robot stories have uh, have dealt with that issue directly. I can go back to the 60s. There was a Brian Aldous story called "But Who Can Replace a Man?" Uh, humans are gone, yep. and robots are trying to sort of recreate them. There's a Roger Zelazny story from the same period called "For a Breath I Terry, yep. Uh in, in which robots try to recreate some notion of what humanity must have been like, so they uh, so they can ask the question of what what being human means, and the really successful writers, the the, the, the good writers, and I would put Aldous and Zelazny in that category, have always known that. They've always yeah. written their robot stories from that perspective. Uh, just having robots as walk-on support characters uh, has never worked, and I don't think much of anybody is doing that anymore. No, no. So, if anything, we've finally begun to realize what robots are really good for in science fiction, which is a kind of thematic. A kind of philosophical kind of metaphorical image but not a literal uh extrapolation
1: of, of what the future is going to look like true even though we like it i mean we do i mean look at blade runner mm-hmm. you know we're all we're all swept up in the romanticism of that but you know it's humanoid robots that are causing the trouble in the um you know as, as a plot driver
0: really well, even there, uh, and, and, and the novel paid some uh, attention to this, and, and uh, Dick's novel paid a lot more attention to it. These were created in the shadow of some of the early Asimov robots. They were creed, cr- created to do off-world work that was too dangerous yeah. for humans. Um, so, so to that extent, they uh, they they had some sense. They were not supposed to be on Earth at all. Uh, Though there's, there's a great deal in uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? As to why. Uh, the androids were banned from, from Earth uh, and it, it makes perfectly good sense in the context of that novel uh, so again I'd say Dick is one of the people who understood what robots were really good for uh, I just uh, my point is that I don't think at this point that even if we decide to start exploring the surface of Mercury or the surface of Mars or the uh, certainly not likely to get to the surface of Mercury or Venus we're not going to use uh, you know clanking uh, uh metallic machines to do that. We're going to have special use robots like the ones we have on Mars now.
1: No. I, mean, I, think, I, think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, I've, I've certainly seen Bruce Sterling write about the fact that, you know, his, his view that he couldn't imagine us actually sending people out to the stars physically, that we would send remote telepresence for uh, robots. And then that's a far more likely way of occupying most of the solar system as well, at least in on a human time scale. You know, when you get out to terraforming for three, four, mm-hmm. five, six hundred years or something, as we see in, you know, a particular stripe of fiction, not the least Stan Robinson's Twenty Three Twelve, it's much more you know believable to, to, to sort of see that we would be throwing a whole pile of robot, you know, of robotic devices into say Venus's atmosphere or out past Saturn or whatever it was. That's conceivable. That's something That's we're doing now. You know, so. and,
0: I, I, and and then there are going to be wonderful giant robotic machines. I suspect. And, and you mentioned Stan Robinson, who's one of his most stunning inventions in 2312, is this mechanical city crawling across the face of Mercury, sure. which is sure. where it opens. So that doesn't surprise that 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 doesn't bother me uh, in that uh, it's fine. I guess what I'm getting at is that a lot of the images of science fiction, which began as images of the future, have gradually matured into literary devices, and robots are one of them.
1: Um, sure, faster than light travel.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, faster than light travel is another one. Uh, there isn't any reasonable science fiction way, as Jeff Ryman and his mundane crew keep reminding us, there isn't any reason why that's going to happen. You can, you can have multi-generational starship uh, stories, and uh, we still get those, and we're going, going to always get those. But, yeah, generation starships are the only way you can uh, get to another star system. Faster than light travel is just made up. I mean, you can play with black holes all you want to. Um, the, some of them don't catch on. It's, it's fascinating to me when there's some key images in science fiction that are enormously popular for a while yep. and and go away because they don't seem to have that narrative power. And I go back to what I mentioned earlier. Back in the late 40s, uh, yep. uh, uh, Van Vogt was really fond of mutants. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that
1: sounds very and, bad,
0: but yeah. I know. They were... And you can see why, because at some point uh, during the uh, post-Hiroshima era, uh, it became popular knowledge that radiation could create genetic mutations. Yeah. So, of course, that immediately gives you uh, an entire generation of bad 50 science fiction movies uh, in which mutants are created overnight. I mean, it's like, here's a blast of radiation, and the next morning there's a monster out there. Yeah. Uh, They were, for for a while there, they were serving the same purpose that zombies serve now. They were just, here's a sort of vaguely science fictional way to create a monster, so we'll use it. But the idea that mutations didn't happen that way eventually overtook the image, and the image has almost died out of science fiction, as far as I can tell.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. There's something else we should touch on before we run away, or I think we should, uh, because we talked about this as well before we got started, and it's moving away from robots and science fiction iconography. And it has to do with the rece- how the way stories are received in the modern world, and yeah. that's uh, Orson Scott Card's now six or seven year old novella *Hamlet's Father* being repackaged by Subterranean Press as a standalone book, and then being reviewed by *The Guardian*. I'm oh, sorry, by *The Rain Taxi*. By *Rain Taxi*. Rain who, taxi*. Who who published quite a passionate review of the book. And criticizing uh, the politics of it, particularly, I think would be fair to say.
0: Well, I think it's essentially the homophobia, which is apparently in the book. And I've not read the book. I did oh. read that rain tax review. And there are enough supporting quotations from the review to make the book sound fairly disturbing.
1: Yes, yes. It's, it's not a text I'm in a rush to read, but there's. I, I guess it's. It's the the, the sociology of, around it, I guess, that's interesting, as much as it is the actual book itself. You know, how should we respond to texts from you know that have views that we are troubled by from authors who previously we've 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 enjoyed their work, you know, or or not as the case may be. You know, do you keep reading them? Do you stop? Do you condemn them? Um, you know, wh- when does outrage get old? I mean, here's subterranean press being criticised for reprinting a what uh, sorry th- three four-year- old story uh, mm-hmm. but but nobody criticized or it wasn't widely criticized on the first two iterations of its publication the, the, you know is is there a use by date on outrage or
0: I don't think there is or needs to be I think that uh, the the main reason this book probably was not this story actually this novella really yeah it wasn't um, wasn't the subject of a, of a lot of online comment uh, four or five years ago was because nobody called it to anyone's attention. As I recall, there was a science fiction book club anthology yeah. and one other anthology that was, um, reprinted in. And for some reason, uh, nobody paid much attention to it, even though it's, as I understand, not really a, a science fiction or fantasy novel at all. Yeah, It's not, you can't, you can't even say it's an alternate world novel because it's an alternate Hamlet novel. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, one of the problems I have, and um, it, it's it's an issue that comes up with the reviewers. I've said many times before, when you when you find something is just egregiously uh, bad, uh, you don't finish it and you don't review it. Yeah. Then you get somebody who's an enormously talented narrative artist, like Scott Card is. Uh, he tells a very good story. He tells it in a compelling way, um, and he began at a, at a certain point in his career writing uh, sequels to the Ender novels, or as he called them, I think, uh, maybe he didn't call them, I think maybe this was something that Steve Baxter came up with, the term orthoquel.
1: Okay. Yeah,
0: right. Orthoquel meaning a parallel story to one that's already been told, yep. rather than the continuation of it. And so he was getting into uh, you know, Ender's Shadow, and finally I think the last one in that series may have been called Shadow of the Giant. There was a huge amount of vitriol about Muslims in it. And there was a fair amount of stereotyping about Chinese and, uh, and Indians no. and others. And I, I called attention to that in review, and I said I found it disturbing. And what I find disturbing about somebody like that is, is not when a bad writer writes uh, a vitriolic book. I mean, 20 years ago or so, there was a book circulating a survivalist white supremacist book white yeah. called The Turner Diaries. And to some extent, it was a crackpot book. Yep. Uh, here you've got a professional writer with enormous amounts of skill and quite a bit of following and I think the issue that comes up in my mind is he also has a, a significant online presence Yeah. he is as you and I have talked about arguably when you go outside the science fiction community itself arguably the most popular science fiction writer in the world
1: Yeah. It's on him. the basis of Ender's Game yes, I mean certainly Ender's uh, Game has entrenched his, his dead name dead. forever in the field you know what I mean? Uh, or the the, the internet. Well, Ender's Game is yeah. Is, it, it, it cemented well, its reputation. Well, Ender's in Game is it, it's one of the, the, the top popular. selling. Yeah, we're, we're talking over each other. It, I think it came out number seven. It.
0: Didn't it come out number seven in then NPR list or something? It, it some may have,
1: but I mean the important thing about that book is so here you've got some school text. I mean Ender's Game is the science school text, and it's the second highest selling science fiction book each, each year for the last ten years in the United States. So, really? yeah, I mean, it sells phenomenally well. So, there's this incredibly popular, well known, widely read science fiction writer. If you were to go out and about the place and ask someone at, at random on the street, there's a good chance that if they had to name a science fiction writer, he's the guy they'd, that, that, uh, you know, sort of mention. Mm-hmm. Now, what does the, what's the impact of a writer in that position? and I don't mean uh, in terms of community responsibility, but in terms of profile, writing work like this. Particularly since, I mean, let's face it, I probably stopped reading S- Scott Card after Lost Boys came out, pretty much. Back in ni- the late 19- late 80s, oh. 1989, 1990 or so. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not surprised that he's writing controversial stuff, because it's entirely consistent with his public worldview, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, or maybe that's maybe that's why I'm sort of a little bit. I don't know how I feel about this. I, I was taken aback at the, the the path it took in the modern online fail environment, shall we say? Well, I think one of the things that
0: uh, disturbs me about the, the, the what you call the fail environment is there is a sense that I I don't know where that term came from. I know the whole race fail thing was going on. Yeah, it strikes me that it's it's um it implies there's some kind of a failure of sensitivity here there's not scott card is saying exactly what he believes oh yeah um he he, he, he is not failing to convey his point of view at all Uh, when he's as popular as he is uh, and you have uh interest game which is now marketed mostly as a young adult novel Yep. uh and young adults these days immediately if they really really like a novel are going to get on google and they're going to find their way to scott cards blog yep and and then you have to deal with the distinction between the writer as a person, the writer as an ideologue, yeah. and the novel itself. I don't think, I mean, I, I, I actually have some problems with Ender's Game, uh, but not to that extent, not not, not to the extent that I, I, I believe it's um, a bigoted or racist or homophobic. I mean, maybe those themes are there. I just didn't see them when I read it. I have not read it in a long time. I do have problems with, uh, with Card essentially preaching to a... Uh, using his notoriety and using his fame and using his success as a pulpit to to uh, create an intolerant point of view and to promote that to younger yeah. readers. That, that disturbs me.
1: Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the things that's changed, and I was just thinking about this as you're saying that, is the way this whole profile thing happens, because you know, you're know you saying that a, 14, a 13-year-old who's given Ender's Game to read you know, mm-hmm. when I was thirteen, if I'd been by some you know, by some magic hook or crook, given Enders' game to read, and I really wanted to read another Scott Card book, I would have looked at the flap flap copy of the book, and gone out and I would found it find it or have spoken to my librarian or whatever else. The idea that I would encounter Scott Card or his viewpoints would never have entered my head because it would never have happened. For the first yeah, 20, have- for the first twenty years of my life, you would never mm-hmm. have encountered anything about a writer at all. You know that's a modern phenomenon. And the idea that I could read a Scott Card book, go online, read his blog, potentially interact with him, absolutely impossible.
0: You know, it, it, it could it, be. It, yeah, the only way to answer that is to know what a 13-year-old or 14 or 15-year-old is doing today, and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, I don't. Um, as it and as uh, we should preface this, I should preface this, we should preface this by saying we haven't read Hamlet's Father. No, no, uh, we, no, no we did say it, yeah. But, yeah, so, so so we're going on the basis of uh, what seems to be a, a problem. I guess the other problem that, that I have with that is I know a number of writers uh, in the field whose political and social views I disagree with radically, oh, sure. and some yeah, of them are yeah. good friends. And uh, I'm thinking of three in particular who I probably shouldn't name. Uh, and they are assiduously keep this out of their fiction uh, and t- to the extent that uh, they're not writing fiction to illustrate a particular thesis. They're not trying to, in, in the case of what appears to be the case of Hamlet's father, uh, trying to reinterpret a classic text in terms of a very contemporary agenda. Uh, and, and that, it seems to me, I don't have any problem with the writers I seriously disagree with. Yeah. I have something of a problem with the writers who seem to want to uh use their power to uh advance specific agendas uh and the, the the problem I have with that now the problem I have the minute I say that is am I saying that because it doesn't bother me when somebody advances an agenda that I agree with yeah because uh, Paolo Bachagallupi is full of agendas, but they happen to be agendas that I find amenable
1: yeah see this is it I guess what what the the response that occurred to me with is I don't <laughs> In, on principle, I've no objection. In fact, no. I have no great objection with Scott Card or someone like Scott Card. No, let's take it back from Scott. I've got no particular problem with somebody espousing things that I disagree with in their fiction. That that's their right. That's their freedom of speech. All that kind of stuff. And I, mm-hmm. but um, I also have no problem with people criticising it. I guess, and I've got no problem with people not writing it or not reading it I, I guess the problem is and I don't know that I mean I really doubt that it does but uh, does' it descend to what you would think of as hate speech I guess because that's that's where it becomes a real problem and I, I deeply doubt that Scott card's piece descends to that that, that you know uh, I know that he has got a particular set of views uh, of which I'm loosely of which I'm loosely aware I have to say um, and I'm happy to you know as a result to sort of just be aware of that and filter my view of his fiction through that i don't need him to change or to I, guess, I don't need to, yeah. to read it yeah well i mean
0: that's that's the other problem is we're, we're we're objecting to things or i'm objecting to this novella at least that i haven't read and the only way to justify that objection is to read something i don't want to read and find unpleasant i will take a little bit of exception to what you said about people embedding their their beliefs or their or their their passionately held convictions in fiction Uh, I have no problem with that either, as long as it doesn't distort the fiction as fiction. Yeah. Uh, In other words, there is a fair amount of uh, uh, environmental uh, preaching going on in some of um, Paolo Baciglubi's stories, as there has been in stories going back to Stan Robinson and a number of people. Yeah. Sometimes it distorts the novel. Sometimes it... It makes the novel less of a novel, and this is where I become something of an esthete. The novel has to work on its own terms, Um, and if you pause a novel or shift a novel in order to introduce a character who wants to present a point of view, and suddenly the action of the novel is stopped dead while you listen to a lecture, then I think you have a problem of somebody's personal beliefs distorting the nature of their art. And that almost always results in in a less good novel.
1: Yeah. Hmm. I have to say I now. I have to say now. We're we're actually in troubling territory here. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably heard me clicking away a little bit in the background. Uh, mm-hmm. And I realised that we should remove Scott Card from this envir- in, in the, this discussion almost entirely, and I'll tell you why, or abstract him out of it, uh, because we haven't read Hamlet's father. We've read the Rain Taxi right. review, and nor have we read Scott Card's long. Uh, defense of his own story so i think until we do we probably have to allow that we're not well informed enough t- to have an opinion about that let his story stand for itself and try and you know to the extent we're going to continue talking about this at all pull our com- comments back to just the fact of what do you do when you encounter someone talking about fiction that you're talking about something you don't agree with in their fiction what do you talk do when you've got a writer with views you don't share and which maybe trouble you which you see in fiction you know in their fiction or or not you know or you know, do you keep reading them
0: I agree with one of the two things you said I think we've not read Hamlet's father and therefore cannot make informed statements about it Yeah not having read Scott Card's defense of it doesn't impress me at all because if he feels like he needs to write a defense of it there's and, and there would extra the, the text is itself the, the the story is itself it has to work yeah. by itself it doesn't have to work in conjunction with the author's accounting for what it means because that means it's a fail it's, it's a failed text yeah. essentially if the yeah. author has to mount a long blog post saying this is what the book is about well, that's almost to me an admission that the book didn't quite get the point across on its own yeah but yeah. I, I, I would agree that we should probably pull back because we're both reacting to a set of reactions rather than to a text itself
1: and and i would say that in in the modern online discussion environment which we which we both take part in and enjoy and value Mm. that's always on the table on you know on the cards for one of better putting it that you'll end up talking about something that you're not really well informed to talk about and that's something you know really that is a a bit of a giveaway that we're rambling gary it could be. It could be. It could be. That means we're almost done. I think probably for this week we are done. Uh, I'm not going to go back and recut this at all. I'll leave our long, rambly sort of thing about this. But somewhere in there, there's something interesting. I think. But may, who knows? We may address it again in coming weeks, just to sort of crystallise what we think. I, I mean, I will say that whilst I will go off and read Scott's discussion and everything else, I still don't think I'm, I've got time to go read hamlet's father and nor do i feel particularly motivated to based on the reviews or description though i'm sure no, there are people who uh, will love it so i am happy though that we got to talk about two books that, uh one that we've both read and loved one that you've read and you've obviously loved uh, in play you know obviously both having loved planes runner and i have to say it's a it's one thing i didn't say earlier it's one of the few books that i've read l- recently in a series where i put the book down and if i had had everness the sequel that he's working on now mm. i would have read it immediately
0: you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a very, very fast read, yeah. and, and we're not giving much away to say it, it, it ends on a very tempting kind yeah. of
1: cliffhanger. Yeah, it does. So, on that happy, sure. cheery note, Gary, I will see you next week. We will do this again. We'll do it again. A pleasure we'll as always. That. Okay, take care, my friend. Bye. You too. Bye.